He's gotten kind of a bad rap over the years, poor Thomas. We usually refer to him as Doubting Thomas, the one who demands physical proof of Jesus' resurrection. In some corners of the Christian family, Thomas has become synonymous with the worldly sophisticate, the scientifically-minded progressive, the original cultured despiser of Christianity. Then in the 19th and 20th centuries, with the rise of historical criticism, social scientific approaches to scriptural interpretation, Thomas kind of got a little bit of a rehabilitation. He's become the patron saint of modernity, if you like, one who sanctifies doubt itself. He's like the patron saint of Episcopalians, an inspiration to keep asking hard questions, never settling for simplistic answers. I suspect there's a bunch of us in this room who consider Thomas our favorite saint. Until I experience Jesus for myself, he says, until I see the mark of the nails in his hands, until I put my finger in that scar, I will not believe. I think Doubting Thomas is an unfair name for this guy, though, and I think maybe that puts the emphasis of this story in the wrong place. There's an older name for this story. It's the name that it usually gets in icons. It's called the Touching of Thomas. Touchy. Touchy Thomas, we might call him. Touchy in that he's a little bit of a drama queen, let's be honest. And touchy because he's the, the one, the only one, who actually gets to touch Jesus' body. Nobody else gets that. Jesus famously says to Mary when he encounters her in the garden, do not hold on to me, right? Noli me tangere in Latin, do not touch me. And then when Jesus appears later that same Easter day to the gathered disciples in the locked room, he shows them his wounds, he, he breathes on them, but the text does not record any acts of physical contact. Only Thomas, the last of the disciples, the one who missed out on that Easter night appearance, only Thomas actually gets to make contact. Only Thomas gets to touch. So he's not really doubting Thomas, although he is the patron saint of those of us who ask hard questions. Maybe he's touchy Thomas, the guy who's a little bit extra, who gets to reach out his hand and place his, place his finger in Jesus' scars. I suspect, though, that the best way to understand Thomas is to call him grieving Thomas, tortured Thomas, maybe. Thomas, who is still traumatized by what he witnessed, his friend and mentor being tortured to death before his very eyes. Thomas is working through some grief. And he's working through it in the only way he knows how, right? By resisting every comfort that is thrown his way. Everybody around him is going crazy. They're claiming to have seen the master walking around town, floating through doors, showing up inside locked rooms. And Thomas is angry, I think. He's indignant. I think about a, a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, a woman whose husband was quite well-known, something of a celebrity in his field. And when he died, all of his friends and colleagues were calling my friend up with these stories that were meant to comfort her, right? I dreamed about him last night, someone said. It's like he, it was like he was there. It's like he came to visit me. I, I can't stop thinking about him, somebody else said. It was as if he was in the room with me. And the guy's wife, my friend, was always very polite when she heard these stories. But she told me once she felt like screaming, he has not appeared to me yet. Like, what, is he still on the road? Would you tell him to call home, please, when you see him? I'd kind of like a word. Thomas is grieving, 
Everybody around him is reporting these magical encounters that feel to him, I think, unhinged and preposterous. So he demands not proof, he wants to touch. This is where I think we get Thomas wrong when we dismiss him or enshrine him as the patron of doubters. It's not that he refuses to believe until he has proof. It's that he refuses to be assuaged. He refuses to be comforted. He refuses to be placated in his grief until he can touch his beloved with his own two hands. That's not doubt. That's love. Thomas demands a body when everybody around him is settling for a ghost. And that was a thing in this world. That was a thing in John's world, the world in which this was written. That was a thing in Thomas's world. There, was a, there were some ancient followers of Jesus who found the claims of a bodily resurrection not only impossible to believe, but more to the point, deeply gross. Later, they came to be called Gnostics. That's an ahistorical term. They would not have recognized that term, and it lumps a lot of very disparate groups together. But one of the things that some of these groups tended to do was to bifurcate the world into matter and spirit, into bodies and souls, flesh and ether, if you like. One of those worlds was bad. That was the world of bodies, the world of the flesh, because bodies decay, right? Bodies make weird noises and smells. Bodies act in ways that are deeply disturbing if you're trying to live an ascetic life, right? And many of these groups were into stuff like celibacy and fasting and controlling their bodies so that the work of the soul could proceed without impediment. So there's a, there's a kind of a strong suspicion of the physical body in some of these early Christian sects. Anything that, that suggests that Jesus' resurrection was actually a resurrection of the spirit, right? A kind of mythical, mystical encounter with a heavenly being, that makes sense. A spiritual resurrection, we can handle that. He was, he was in my dream last night, right? He was, it was as if he was in the room with me. I could almost hear his voice. That's different than touching him, right? That's different than the intimacy of touch when you have known the body of a spouse or a partner or a lover or a friend. That's different. When your body remembers what the touch of their hand felt like on your skin. I mean, I don't know what was going on between Thomas and Jesus. That is none of my business and it's not any of yours. But this is a very particular request. There's an intimacy to this request. And there's something about this request that I recognize. I want to touch his body again. And until I can do that, your stories are hogwash. This story from John's Gospel seems to me to be riding directly into the body controversy that is happening in the first couple centuries of the Christian movement because the insistence of this text is that the body that Jesus' disciples saw die is the body that they experienced raised, right? It's not another body, it's not a spiritual body, it's not a memory body, it's the same body. He, he stood back up, right? That's all resurrection means, remember? He, he stood back up, that body stood back up and started walking around. That is the insistence of this text. And the story of Thomas seems to serve almost as a, as a provocation, a, a thumbing of the nose, if you like, to groups who are interested in only a resurrection of the spirit. Nope, John says, it was a body. We touched it, we felt it, we know what it's like to touch risen, risen flesh. And then John says, blessed are those who have not seen, who have not touched, and yet have come to believe. So I don't, I don't quite know what to make of that. This firm insistence in John's gospel, the whole point of this story, if you like, 
that re the relationship between Thomas and Jesus was not a spiritualized mind meld. It was not a mystical communion. It was not just that they were very good friends. No, they touched each other. The resurrection in John is a physical thing, and it is experienced in physical, we might even say, uncomfortably erotic ways. A friend of mine asked me this week, you know, the Catholic Church says that you have to believe in the bodily resurrection in order to be considered a Christian. Is that, is that right? Is that how you define what it means to be a Christian? How do I know? How do I know if I'm a Christian or not? I suspect that's a question that a lot of us struggle with. How do I know I'm doing it right? Because mostly, we Episcopalians, with our, our privileging of doubt, our radical hospitality, all the ways in which we kind of stand a little bit outside of the mainstream of what most Americans would consider to be Christianity, I mean, we gotta wonder. Maybe you don't. I do. I mean, I stand up here week after week, and I, I tell you all the stuff that I don't think you have to believe. In a world, you know, a world may not, have, may not have been created in seven days. Maybe Adam and Eve were not actual people who lived in a garden. Maybe you're not actually going to go to hell if you're gay. I mean, I'm not even sure I believe in hell. A lot of people do. So if I'm, if I'm going to define myself not by what I don't believe, not by what I've stopped believing, if I'm going to start thinking about what I, what I do believe, where do I start? Let go of the doubting for a second. That's not the only thing that this story is about. If he's not really doubting Thomas, the original skeptic, who is he? I mean, I don't think you have to look that far underneath a skeptic, skeptic's exterior to find, nine times out of ten, a grieving person who is longing to believe. So what does Thomas believe? What do you believe? Have you ever touched Jesus. Some of you have. I suspect it's a little bit like Narnia. When you encounter Jesus in a way that is uncomfortably, maybe gloriously physical, you don't tend to tell a lot of people about it because it sounds kind of weird. Sometimes you do tell your priest about it, so I think maybe I get a higher proportion of these stories than are in the general population. And I know some of you well enough to know that, yes, you are pretty odd, but you're no more odd than I am. You're no more odd than Teresa of Avila, or John of the Cross, or Julian of Norwich, or Thomas the Apostle, or anybody else who has experienced something in their body that could only be defined as the real presence of Jesus, a physical experience of Jesus Christ. I believe that what you have experienced is real. I have not experienced it in that way for myself. Like Thomas, on that Easter Sunday, I'm still waiting for my touchy moment. Jesus made Thomas wait for eight days. That's kind of a long time when you're waiting. And then I think, well, baloney, Nathan, you're touching him all the gosh darn time. I mean, you touched him last night when you went to give last rites to an 80-year-old woman in the hospital. Her family gathered around her angel voices singing. It was a CD player, but you get the idea. I walk down that altar rail Sunday after Sunday. I hold out these stupid plastic little wafers of cardboard we call bread. I go down that line. I touch your hands. I meet your eyes. And I think I am touching Jesus. You are Jesus for me. I lay hands on sick people. I get to bless babies. I pray with people in their most intimate moments of grief. And every time I'm sitting there wondering, like, is it you? <laughs> is it you, Jesus? 
I won't tell you about some of the weirder encounters I've had because they're not really appropriate for this pulpit, but trust me when I say the work of the gospel puts you in some pretty weird places. And when you start looking for opportunities to touch Jesus, he shows up all over the gosh darn place. He's everywhere. He's all over this room. He's showing up inside my body, inside your body. We don't tend to name those things as mystical encounters. At least I don't. It's usually my job. But these are not encounters that are unique to clergy. You too, many of you. You know what it's like. You know what it's like to, to hold a newborn baby in your hands for the first time. You know what it's like to stroke the hair of your beloved one moments after the breath has left his body for the final time. As Jesus says to Thomas in this story, do not doubt, but believe. I'm right there. I'm right here, standing in front of you. And when you touch this world with love and care and compassion, truly, I tell you, you are touching me. Maybe that's all it means to be a Christian. You don't have to, you don't have to believe a thing. All you have to do is reach out your hands and touch him. So it is truly not important to me. Please hear me when I say this. It is truly not important to me whether or not you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, if you define it literally, whether you define it spiritually, or if you prefer not to define it at all, what I'm interested in is the experience of resurrection that we have week by week in this room together, whether we're here out of duty, loyalty, nostalgia, tradition, or a, a deep and unsearchable sense of longing. Whatever puts us into this room, whatever force drags us to this altar, asks us to hold out our hands, to touch the hands of another person, to hear the, the sacred words, this is the body of Christ, this is the blood of Christ. Whatever puts us into proximity with that sacred and holy touch in a world where touch is generally weaponized and abused. Whatever puts you face to face with Jesus this morning, that is the only resurrection that I care about. Because we are here, like our patron, the doubter, we are here to touch Jesus, to fall to our knees in love and gratitude, to behold him face to face. And to say with Thomas, my Lord and my God, you are here. I can touch you.